0: Good morning, Wallace. If I haven't met you, I'm Jamie Duggett, the pastoral intern here. And uh, this January, we've been doing some topical sermons as we get ready to launch into our swords and sandals epic that will be our series on the life of David coming next week. Trust me, Game of Thrones has nothing on First and 2 Samuel, so buckle up. But uh, this week… It's my turn to preach a topical sermon. And as I thought about what would be something that's important for us to learn about from the Bible. The thing that came kept coming back to me was to learn something more about church discipline. Let me define church discipline for you really quickly. What does that mean? Well, church discipline is everything the church does to train and correct how we live our lives in a way that reflects the holiness of God. And when you hear discipline, you may immediately think of of punishments or or consequences, and and that's not entirely wrong. Church discipline can uh, can involve some very serious steps, even including excommunication. But discipline, biblically, is wider than that. It, It doesn't just include consequences. It also includes the training that molds us into disciplined people kind of like what boot camp is supposed to do for a soldier. In my Sunday school class, we've been talking about church discipline. So if you want to hear more about that, those are on YouTube. Like and subscribe. I'll put links in the description. Um, But today I want to take a passage that we've only touched upon there and, and open it up because it's very important to shape us as we pursue holiness together as a church. And that passage is 1 Thessalonians 5:12 through 15. So if you'll turn there with me and uh, your pew Bibles or whatever you happen to have uh, brought from home, 1 Thessalonians 5, starting at verse 12. Let's pay careful attention to the reading of God's word. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. This is the word of the Lord. So as you look at this passage this morning, these few short verses, I want us to see three points. First, we're going to see that we should respect church leaders in their work of church discipline. Second, we should see, we're going to see that different people need different kinds of care in the church. And thirdly, we're going to see that our hope in church discipline is ultimately in Jesus. Jesus the Lord of the church. So we're going to see that we should respect church leaders. We're going to see that different kinds of people need different kinds of care. And then we're going to meditate on how our hope is ultimately in Jesus. The first point, we should respect church leaders in their work of church discipline. Take a look at verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them them very highly in love because of their work. There are two imperatives here. The first is in verse 12. It means to respect or to acknowledge. And the second in verse 13, to esteem them very highly or to regard them exceedingly highly. So Paul is addressing our attitudes here. How we think, how we feel, how we comport ourselves towards leaders in the church. And Paul says that this is something we should do in love. It's not just a a cold, formal recognition. It's, It's a deep, personal commitment. Well, why should we do this? Paul gives us the reason at the end, because of their work. We should have a high view of church leaders because we have a high view of the work that they are called to do. So what is the, the, this work that uh, your leaders are, are busy at? Well, we could, we could talk about a lot of things. Uh, a lot goes on at elders' and deacons' meetings throughout the week. But Paul highlights here specifically admonishment. These leaders are those who admonish you. And that verb, uh, it, it's used many times in the New Testament. It refers to corrective teaching teaching that disciplines or trains us out of the way that seems right to us but leads to disaster into the way which is truly safe and right. It's not always equally confrontational. Uh, Sometimes it just refers to the regular sort of instruction we receive in the church from the pulpit or in Sunday school classes that are designed to shape us over time. Sometimes it's a warning about a place we're headed. Uh, but sometimes it is a rebuke about something that we have done. And as we'll see in the next point, this is something that any Christian can do. It's not only the leaders of the church who are called to admonish, um, but leaders in the church do have a special role, a special role given in this process. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells His disciples that if they're not able to work through a sin problem they have with another believer… Uh, and, and reach reconciliation interpersonally, they're supposed to go and tell it to the church. So when we can't work something out interpersonally, the Bible gives elders in the church a particular responsibility for working out problems. And that may often involve admonishments, warnings, and perhaps even rebukes. So Paul is saying we should respect leaders in the church because of this important work they do in admonishing us. How do you feel about that? I wonder if you have any, any objections to that. Uh, well, I think we're in a, actually in a historical moment right now where we're paying a lot of attention to how authority is used, and especially abuse of authority. Um, actually, I think that's a good thing overall. We're, we're asking a lot of questions like, how can the church prevent abusive behavior? Uh, how can we hold people accountable for abuse in the church? How can we build a culture of accountability? And um, as much as we're paying attention to how that process goes wrong, I think our culture cares a lot about it going right, too. I mean, we have a lot of debates. When should Twitter kick someone off their platform? Whose podcast should Spotify carry? Uh, We're very interested in holding institutions accountable. So as much as we're maybe sometimes suspicious of institutional power, we really, really want institutions to actually hold themselves accountable. I think sometimes that can be a little scary in the church for those of us who've been here a long time because now we're under a lot more scrutiny, maybe, than we've been. But personally, I welcome it. You know, um, people who maybe in the past wouldn't have been caught dead at a congregational meeting are suddenly very interested in how the church is structured and governed. People are tuning in to their denominational meetings online to make sure that things are being done right. And, you know, that really warms my Presbyterian heart. I I love to see it. And, you know, actually the Bible has a lot to say about abuse of authority, too. If that's something that really concerns you, well, the New Testament holds church leaders to high standards of accountability, and it tells them not to use their power in a domineering way. Um, But I'll, I'll leave that for my church discipline class if you're interested in hearing more. This passage reminds us, though, not to let our focus on the abuse of church authority so... Steal our focus that we lose all respect for appropriate church authority. Paul says that we are to have a very high regard for the work leaders in the church are given to do. And we should encourage and support them in doing it well. And if we're wise, we'll know that we ourselves need those God has gifted and called to do this work. This reading from Proverbs that Jan did earlier makes it clear that if you hate rebuke, if you hate admonishment, you actually hate yourself, and you're never going to be able to become an intelligent person. That's, that's what it says. But if you develop the humility that comes with the fear of the Lord, you'll realize that you come to the church as somebody who needs correction to grow in wisdom. There's nobody here this morning who is so wise that they don't need to hear what the Spirit might be telling them through their brothers and sisters. And actually, I think the ones of us who are most wise realize that truth most deeply and are the ones who listen most. If we understand our need for this work, it should lead us to have a great respect for the people God has made most responsible for it. So that's the first point. We should respect leaders in their work of church discipline. Second point, different people need different care in church discipline. Look at verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Who are these commands addressed to in verse 14? Some commentators think that Paul is only talking to the leaders that he mentioned in the previous verse here. But I don't think so. I think the word brothers um, here addresses the whole church, brothers and sisters. Now, after all, Matthew 18 does say that the normal pattern for church discipline is starts interpersonally with going to somebody in private. And there are plenty of other passages in the New Testament where Paul talks about believers generally teaching and admonishing each other. So, while we do have these special leaders called by God to have a particular role in this work, Paul here, I think, is enlisting the entire church to help in the work of church discipline. And so he's setting out for everybody this principle that not every situation and not every person is to be approached in the same way. You know, if you studied medicine, you probably know that. Uh, The same treatment may cure one patient and kill another patient. A doctor has to think about the nature of the disease, um, other complicating factors or diseases the patient might have. Do they have an allergy to this particular medication? And that's how it is in caring for people in the church. We need to know the patient before we can administer the cure. Paul here gives us three major categories. Uh, of patient. The first one is what the ESV translates as idle, but that's wrong. I'm sorry to have to tell you that the Greek word just doesn't mean idle, um, but if you look if your, your footnote in the ESV Bible, you'll see that it says disorderly or undisciplined, which is uh, much better, although I think it could still sound a little bit like, you know, disorderly, undisciplined, that you just like forgot to make your bed in the morning, but the word is a little stronger than that. The old King James Version had unruly. Another translation I've seen is insubordinate. Um, so if you have a pen or pencil with on you, you can, you know, cross that out in your Bibles and circle the footnote. Don't know if I'll get in trouble for telling you to cross something out in your Bibles, but... So the word is unruly or insubordinate. It's actually used of soldiers who break ranks to go rushing ahead of the rest in search of glory and plunder. Paul, I think, he's not just describing somebody who sinned, or even somebody who's caught in, simply caught in a pattern of sin, but somebody who is proud in their sin, insolent, and refuses to submit to the authority of the church. Certainly, those are traits that we find elsewhere in the Bible to describe somebody who needs to be admonished. When somebody is in that place it's spiritual malpractice not to admonish them. They need to be confronted. They need to receive warnings about the path that they're on. And if they ignore those warnings, they need to receive consequences. Now, all of this should still be done in love. Um, uh, Paul says elsewhere that all church authority, all the authority he's been given as an apostle, is only for building up and not for destroying But as any good parent knows, never giving your children consequences is not good parenting, and it's not actually loving them well. Our readings from Proverbs and Hebrews emphasized that, didn't they? They said, uh, parents who love their children discipline them, and that's how God is with us. If we think that grace and mercy mean never confronting others for their sin, we've confused the biblical gospel with just a culture of niceness. However, not everybody is in that first category. Others fall into the category of the faint-hearted that Paul uses here. The Greek word is literally little, little of soul or little of spirit. And it has an Old Testament connection. It's used in the Greek translation of Isaiah 57.15, where God says, I dwell with the high, in the high and holy place, but also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly. And to revive the heart of the contrite. God does not crush the broken and the contrite. He gently revives them and he calls us to do the same. Perhaps you know somebody like this, or or maybe you yourself are like this. Maybe you have a really hard time believing that God will really extend grace to you. Maybe you have a highly active conscience. And the smallest sin causes you to believe that God was just going to give up on you. Maybe it's hard to imagine God as anything other than an angry father or a displeased judge. Brothers and sisters, I want you to realize what dreadful spiritual malpractice it is to approach somebody like that and beat them down with the law. Someone like that usually has a strong sense of their guilt in the law already. What they need is to be reminded of God's grace, to be comforted and consoled. That's the, what Paul uses here, the word encourage or console. That's our second category, the faint-hearted. Thirdly, there's the category of the weak. Nothing here tells us whether this should just be restricted to, to physical weakness or whether it includes emotional, psychological, or other spiritual weaknesses, Um, And so I think we should really see it as covering the gamut of human weaknesses that we could have. It includes physical disabilities and infirmities, mental conditions, really any kind of human weakness. The church is not to be a place where strong people can get together and enjoy being functional strong people. Rather, it's a place where weak people can come for help and where we can be honest about our weaknesses and the need for help. The verb for help here literally means to hold on to somebody. It involves a certain tenacity and commitment in helping. That help's going to involve concrete material help sometimes, caring for people's physical needs. It's also going to involve helping with other kinds of psychological and spiritual healing that need to take place. This category might overlap a little with the previous one, You can think of faint-heartedness as a sort of weakness, maybe, and and encouraging as a kind of help. But I actually think there's a good reason why Paul has put them in in separate categories here. After all, it's a certain sort of mistake that that one can make to try to offer help when encouragement is what is needed. I don't know if you've ever had one of these dynamics, perhaps in a relationship, where where you come looking to be encouraged, and the other person in the relationship wants to fix the problem. Often, not very helpful. and you know, so I, th- I think Paul is maybe identifying that as one form of spiritual malpractice we can avoid. We don't Some people need encouragement, some people need help fixing the problem. I think it also makes it clear that not all problems have to go in the bucket in the two buckets of either unruliness or faint-heartedness. There are problems which are not going to be fixed either by rebuking people or by reminding them that their sins have been forgiven. As important as those two things are. You know, James, the Apostle James, actually pokes fun at the person who gives his brother a very pious um, blessing and then won't actually give him food when he's starving. Um, We need to have more than just Admonishment and encouragement in our toolkits. We're also called to put our faith into works by giving our money and our time and our energy to concretely help our brothers and sisters. So um, it maybe is clear to you that admonishing the weak is just downright cruel. And that, that seems clearly clearly a bad idea. But encouraging the weak can also be spiritual malpractice if we separate it from actually helping them when they're in need. So those are our three categories. And I think our passage today probably challenges each of us in different ways. Probably you have something of a personal default towards one of these three ways of uh, interacting. You know, we may be super oriented towards the truth and have sort of a hair trigger on admonishment whenever anything is a little bit out of line with the truth. I put myself in that category. (laughs) As that's a place I often find I need to grow. It's also possible that we could be naturally very loving and compassionate, but be too afraid to confront people when they need to be confronted. Or we might feel very comfortable helping people in concrete ways, but feel very afraid to move to a place of spiritual friendship that involves emotional emotions happening, perhaps. To add another layer of complexity, we may actually have different knee-jerk reactions in different areas. I think this is true for a lot of us. You know, there, there are certain sins or weaknesses which we're extra patient with, often the ones we've experienced ourselves. And then there may be some others that we just come down really hard on, we just can't tolerate them. And they may not actually really even line up perfectly with what the Bible actually says is more or less serious. Now, for each of us, our natural... Strength might mean there's some people in some context where we're really good at helping. But Paul is calling us to grow in wisdom, especially what the kids these days call emotional intelligence, I think, so that we can learn not just to do what's most natural to us, but to do what is most needed by the person who is in front of us. If we can't learn to do that, we're going to be bad spiritual doctors. A good way to start growing in this area might be to talk about it with your brothers and sisters, especially ones who are gifted in different ways than you. And ultimately, we need to seek wisdom from the Spirit, because without the Spirit's work in our community, we can never become instruments of grace to each other. At the end of this verse, Paul adds an overarching command to all of this, though, doesn't he? He says, be patient with them all if you're going to love other people well, you're going to need patience. And notice that he does say with all. That means it includes the unruly person. Just because you've decided that Christian wisdom means this is an admonishment situation doesn't mean you now get to put that person in a don't-be-patient box. You still have to be patient with them, and actually admonishing someone in a way that's truly loving, that truly restrains anger and points them to grace at the same time, that can be really exhausting, really calls for our patience. But patience is required for the other categories as well. What are you going to do a year from now when the faint-hearted person is still faint-hearted, even when you've been doing such a good job encouraging them? And of course, many kinds of weaknesses and infirmities are not things that can just be fixed. You can think of physical disability and the way that that requires lifelong help. Everything that we do with helping other people needs to be superintended by this master virtue of patience. So that's mostly where we'll leave our second point. I think it could be a great jumping off point for a lot of other discussions. I'll say one book I've always appreciated is Gregory's Pastoral Rule, which is from about a thousand years ago. But what's striking about it is that Gregory goes through all the different sorts of things a pastor might encounter and all sorts of different situations. It says, in this situation, you need to think about this. In this situation, you need to think about that. Uh, I sometimes think that we, have, we, we treat the Bible as just a bunch of rules that need to be rigidly applied, and there are some very absolute rules in the Bible. But sometimes we may not be as good at the other very biblical principle that there's wisdom that needs to be thought out. So I think I'm going to leave the rest to you, maybe to talk over lunch or with other people. What are, what are ways in which we need to be wise in how we interact with different kinds of people? It could be a great starting point for growing in this as a church. But that's where I'll leave our second point for now. It's a beautiful picture of the many faceted ways that we're called to love one another in the church. It's also, uh, I think you'll agree with me, quite challenging. Uh, and if you're like me, you're, you've probably felt convicted of ways you need to grow. But I don't want to just, just end with that and leave us there today. And I think one of the dangers when we zoom in on just a couple of verses from Paul's letters is we can sometimes miss how Paul always keeps going back to the truth of who God is and who Jesus is and the gospel as the foundation for our Christian living. So that, that's where I want to end today. And, and I want to particularly look at just a couple words in verse 12 that help us make this connection. You know, Paul describes the leaders as those who are over us in the Lord. It's a very brief phrase. hugely significant one. Because you see, it relativizes all human leadership and human authority, all human care and discipline we receive from each other under the lordship of Jesus. When we call Jesus Lord, we are confessing that he is the one who is worthy to be worshiped and obeyed. He is our teacher in a way in which no other human teacher can be your elders here at Wallace are not your Lord. No pastor here is your Lord. And as much as esteem and respect is, as they should be given, they cannot take Jesus' place. Even, even church discipline, which God has gifted believers to do so that we can help each other, even church discipline is not something where we can just replace God. The passages we read from earlier on in Proverbs and Hebrews focus us especially on God's activity in disciplining us, something that the church never replaces. And let me turn your attention to one comforting fact that flows from this. Your Lord Jesus is qualified to rule over you because he himself has suffered the abuse of church discipline. I don't know if that's ever occurred to you to think about it that way. But Jesus was falsely found guilty of heresy by a religious court, and he was killed for it. You know, Jesus knows what it's like to be crushed under the perversion of what godly authority was supposed to be. And that actually qualifies him for leadership. And you might say to me, Jamie, I thought Jesus was qualified for leadership because he's God. And that's true, That's very true, but the letter to the Hebrews makes it clear that it's also crucial that the Son of God became human, like us, that he suffered like us, and that needed to happen for him to be our great high priest. Listen to Hebrews 2, starting in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death who are being tempted. There you go. Jesus had to become like you and suffer in ways like you suffer in order to save you, in order to become your high priest. You see, there'll be many times when you and I fail in what God is calling us to here. It's a high calling. There will be times when the church will fail. The church is not inerrant. None of us can love each other perfectly, But Jesus did not fail, and he does not fail. He loved us to the point of death, and his obedience brings forgiveness for our sin. By his suffering, he heals our wounds. Because he persevered through temptation, he's able to help us in our weakness, in our sin, when we're being tempted. By his Spirit, Jesus is with us always, and he encourages us when we're faint hearted he admonishes us when we need it. He always helps us in our infirmities. And Jesus does all of this with the long-suffering patience of God, with a patience that wasn't even broken by the ordeal of the cross. Think about that. If Jesus put up with all of that for you, He can certainly handle all of the difficulties of loving you and being patient with you. This is really the ultimate reason to trust what God is doing in the church, uh, to trust that this will be a place where you can find building up. It's because the church is ruled by such a Lord as our Jesus. And this is the place where I want you to put your ultimate hope today. This is what we should look to as we seek to embody it ourselves. That's especially true if you're somebody who's experienced the abuse of church power yourself. If that's so, then you're in in probably a very difficult place with this topic. Um, And if you have experienced abuse in the church and you're here this morning, first of all, let me just commend you that you're here. I have to say, I I can't claim to have personally suffered that way. I know. I'm not going to claim to know what it's like. But, you know, I'm also just the messenger boy here. Jesus has. Jesus does know what it's like. That's the reason to still be in the church. To expect something good to happen, even from these messed up people who Jesus has brought into his family, it's because of who Jesus is. Jesus does understand where you're coming from. And he's the one who ultimately rules in his church by his spirit, May His Spirit do wonderful, amazing things in our church community here at Wallace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're challenged this morning by this call to love each other, this call to be like you in your patience and long-suffering, in your commitment to truth and also your love, in your gentleness with those who are faint-hearted, in your patience with our weakness. Lord, we know we don't measure up to it, We long to embody it. And we are so grateful that Christ has embodied it for us in our place. We pray that you would be active among us by your Holy Spirit. That you would make us more like Jesus as we learn to love each other imperfectly. We pray we come to more and more resemble him. And that this would be a place where we know Jesus' love. Whereas a love that calls us out of our sin out of our brokenness, a love that's patient with us in our weakness, a love that confronts us when we're going astray. We pray that we would know that here in this church. In Jesus' name, amen.